I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. You're listening to Deep Cut. Ben and Wilson and Eli one you know. Ah! <laughs> Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss that director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. Welcome back to our continuing series on Miranda July. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to give us a rating or review and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also keep up with Deep Cut at Deep Cut Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd. And if you want to talk about this movie with us or chat about other movies and other TV, other media, come join us on our Discord server and you can find a link to that in the description. So, today we're still talking about Miranda July and we're talking about her very first feature, Me and You and Everyone We Know, which premiered in 2005 at Sundance. Mm. And maybe we'll just jump right into it and ask, what do both of you think about this film and like maybe just your general reactions, and then we can go into other things. Eli, the honor is mine to let you go first. Sure, <laughs> okay. <laughs> the honor's all mine. Get out. <laughs> so I watched Me and You and Everyone We Know immediately after watching Kajillionaire. Mm. And if you remember from last week's episode, I wasn't super hot on Kajillionaire, <laughs> but I enjoyed Me and You and Everyone We Know. I find that the lo-fi lower key feel of me and you and everyone we know suits Miranda July's sensibility quite well. Mm. And there's something about the rough around the edges quality that matches the thematic content, the performances and the sense of humor here. So I had a good time, not my favorite thing ever, but I enjoyed it. And the child performances in particular were really cracking me up. There are some really (laughs) funny kids in this movie. Yeah. hundred percent. Agree. What about you, Wilson? I watched the film two times, and I guess both times were for the pod, but one was just a couple months ago when Ben, I don't know, shared the idea of of covering Miranda July on the pod, and I wanted to get a little more acquainted, like I always do. I'm always doing extra homework. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Don't call it homework. It's not homework. It's not homework because I really do enjoy it. Teacher's pet. Yes, I am a big teacher's pet. (laughs) Kiss ass. Homework isn't meant to be enjoyed. (laughs) (laughs) But I think both times I saw it, I came away from it feeling... I I wouldn't say that I loved it, but I didn't hate it. Um, I think it, <laughs> I feel like there's a big a big gap in my opinion between this and Kajillionaire. I feel mm-hmm. like um, this is still lovely, and I think the performances are really solid. And July's worldview is unique, and like put put one dollar in the quirky jar because I'm gonna say quirky. <laughs> um, oh, <laughs> and once again, I'm uh, really into the score that was composed uh, this time by Michael Andrews, who did the score for Donnie Darko and Bridesmaids oh. and a lot of like mainstream comedies. <laughs> Donnie Darko mainstream comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Mainstream for some sort of person. Yes, yes. 
<laughs> and comedy for also a certain sort of person. <laughs> I do want to talk about the web of life narrative structure mm. that she tries to do here mm. and whether or not she does pull it off. I think mm -hmm. for me, it doesn't work as effectively. But I also want to talk about some stylistic internal consistencies that we've mm -hmm. been seeing between the two films that we have discussed. Yeah, I liked it. I think my only big qualm with it is its quirkiness. <laughs> ben, last episode, you brought up a quote of Miranda July responding to critics who called her movie quirky and like sitting in my letterbox account, like fresh, <laughs> like a couple hours is it was my review where I called this movie all sorts of quirky. <laughs> and I think the quirkiness is most of the time a good thing, but I think it dips into kitschiness hmm. uh, quite a few times and i feel i feel like a few times too many for me i want to hear about like which times feel Ooh, kitsch to you yeah. like i'm really interested um yeah let's get into that later i have a thought on that too bookmark it oh yeah it feels like like i called this a landmine last episode and it really feels like it's hard not to step on it mm -hmm. <laughs> and like mm. talk about this aspect of her work and i do wonder about why that is like is it really that apparent in all of her work that it's just gonna scream out at you that you need to like engage with this aspect of her mm. work and also i guess her personality yeah because i think a lot of films are very direct feeds into july's mind and like how she sees the world and how she engages with the world definitely i think my general thoughts on this film is that i think it feels bigger than the sum of its parts i think if i were to look at each of the vignettes individually i wouldn't find them especially compelling but then i think the way that she kind of brings them together to kind of chart this low-key suburban portrait of general loneliness does come together for me for some reason that i can't quite fully articulate and i think in terms of what is quirky about it i for some reason when i'm watching this don't find it especially pushing any of those buttons for me because something about it feels very mundane actually a lot of it mm -hmm. feels very mundane you know what i mean mm -hmm. and yeah. like just slightly odd i guess i wouldn't use the term quirky when i look at this movie and it mm -hmm. is interesting how that differs between me and like and you and you and probably and everyone, everyone who has watched this film <laughs> <laughs> about how they relate to this film yeah i'm very excited to talk about like all those. I think just very quick recap on some context that kind of feeds a little bit into this film, but not too much. Last week's episode, I talked about Miranda July's family and how she describes herself as coming from an anxious family. And Kajillionaire is about that family and also her starting a new family mm. and her anxieties about that. And I think the character of the father in Me and You and Everyone We Know seems, based on what I've read, very based on her father and i can okay, not why i read but what i've inferred from what i've read because of the way that she describes the father as this somewhat neurotic person who is like thinking about all these like spiritual concepts which is very similar to uh, john hawk's character um richard mm. who is also like kind of like hid in the clouds a little bit but then having to deal with like the realities of being a divorced father of two and otherwise it is her debut feature and it debuted at the same time as her husband, Mike Mills, 
first feature as well, beginners. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Were they married at that point? No, they met at Sundance. Oh, my gosh. Which is like, wow. <laughs> Indie film power couple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I found one piece of information that makes sense in the making of this film. She was inspired by Agnes Varda's Le Petit Amour. Mm. Or its alternate title, Kung Fu Master. <laughs> Not a direct translation. Oh. I don't know if you guys know what the film is about. <laughs> I remember cut cut, <laughs> cut to cut to our Agnes Varda episode where you talked about that really weird relationship, that old young. Just to give some context, Kung Fu Master is a romantic film about a mother played by Jane Birkin who falls in love with a 12-year-old boy. Oh. And like has a kind of romantic relationship with him. And this boy just mm-hmm. wants to play this arcade game, Kung Fu Master. <laughs> in the same interview in which she mentioned Kung Fu Master, she also talks about how she apparently knew a real-life child who was having a scatological moment in their life. Scatological meaning... It's shit, bro. <laughs> <laughs> My dad's a gastroenterologist. I know this. Oh. <laughs> Rough. <laughs> I think similar to Kajelina and also especially the future which we can get into next episode. A lot of the material I think that she puts in the films feel very personal and like come from either things that she has seen or like experiences that she has had that she puts into her films. Fascinations. Yeah, and I think I do wonder like about the other vignettes and like how much of this is inspired by things that she has experienced. Mm. Oh my God, and talking about scat, it just reminded me of this insane story that she tells about (laughs) how... Incredible way to launch a sentence. Speaking yeah, of scat, talking about how she broke up with Miguel Arteta, <laughs> Wesleyan alum Miguel Arteta, <laughs> who wrote this. What I'm going to tell you, this incident into a film, which I have not seen, like a pretty recent film, mm. in which while well, they were somewhere, I'm not sure, maybe Joe, at either at home or at some place, and she really needed to take a shit, <laughs> and. I guess the toilets were occupied or something, but then kind of as a joke, she took a shit in a pan, a cooking pan. Oh, as a joke. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> was casually after that washing the pan in the sink. No. And I think Arteta looked at that and it was like, this is crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's a breakup moment. No. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's this quote that I wasn't going to bring up because I didn't really think it was fair, but the critic Matt Lynch on Letterboxd in his review of Kajillionaire said this thing that I now think I believe, (laughs) which is, quote, Miranda July 6 seems like she's never done a normal thing like just going to a grocery store or using an ATM ever in her life on purpose, end quote. Which... Honestly, I don't know why, but that story kind of sways me toward that opinion. And I'll drop my quirky take here, which is that the parts of the movie that feel the closest to what Wilson's describing as kitsch, which would be quirk that goes too overbearing or too far, Mm -hmm. are the moments when she's on screen acting, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Because... I find her performance to be very affected in a way that is closer to the tone of Kajillionaire, whereas the other performances and me and you and everyone we know keep a foot on the ground. I think there's like an alien quality to her a little bit 
in a way that is hard to describe and not the biggest fan of a lot of Lynch's takes on films, but I kind of buy a little bit of that quote as well. Yeah. That I think she sees the world from a very, just like a different lens from a lot of other people. Yes. Like things that are normal are not normal to her. And I think that's why like a lot of things that she sees or that she depicts feel novel in some ways as well because she's looking at the world through eyes that just are very, very different. Mm-hmm. Totally. And of course, that's not a bad thing. And it gives her a really unique and fresh perspective that I think I feel more strongly in this movie than even Kajillionaire mm. for some reason, even though that might be a more coherent execution of her vision across all performances. Mm. Yeah. But I think that leads to the really wonderful art projects that you were telling us about in our last episode, Ben, like the Big Miss Moviola project. Mm-hmm. those things that use the internet as points of connection in really fresh and interesting ways which speaking of is a very strong theme in this movie here mm-hmm. the internet as a point of connection and disconnection and i also feel like probably july's own experiences with dealing with galleries and the art i guess yeah the art yeah. in quotes world informed that whole relationship that she has with the gallery yes it's really difficult to refer to a character as the character's name because it feels like so just herself like a video artist struggling and trying to get into galleries i think that character and that arc with the gallery person nancy harrington i think feels almost painfully sincere like extremely vulnerable in a way that i think yes it kind of dips a little bit into for some people kitsch but i think this is kind of miranda july as herself and like there's something like off kilter about her as a person and her character in this film but i always see this like vulnerability that she is projecting mm. that she cannot help but like be this person of like she feels brittle in that sense like she's just sincere about what she's trying to do about this art project about about this video that she's trying to make and the relations that she has with the gallery person feel very blunt like she doesn't understand the distance between her and the gallery person especially when she's holding her vhs tape trying to give it to her in the elevator and then that person just will not collect (laughs) and it's like okay and also i really like when she has a little end tag in her vhs tape and then she just like is going i can do whatever i want yeah yeah and it just does this weird like scream grunt thing (laughs) that part of the tape is definitely the most sincere of this arc of the movie that you're talking about ben but otherwise i find that the sincerity of those passages is a little bit sabotaged by the 2d sketching of this gallery character Mm -hmm. she's Mm -hmm. the most characterized of all the people who we meet in this movie And also, again, there's something about Miranda July's acting style that I'm finding it hard to strike a connection with, Mm -hmm. though I do really appreciate how she's putting this art making sensibility that she clearly has in her own real life into this character that she's playing. And those glimpses of her process are very interesting. And yeah, again, that passage where the gallery owner is watching the end of the tape where Miranda July is sort of spilling her guts and expressing her frustration. Yeah. That's the more sincere passage of that Mm -hmm. for me. 
And I think the payoff of the macaroni when Christine gets that call later, like a few scenes later, I think makes the scene worth it. Mm. But I do feel like Nancy Harrington, the head of that gallery, she becomes really important in a lot of ways that I didn't want to see. I think the first time I was watching it, I was like sort of dreading this like through line through the different characters in the movie. And when I found out that she was the person that little little Robbie was oh. talking to online, I was like, this is not <laughs> this is not the way that I wanted things to connect. But I think it was just my own personal wishes just because I got so much joy out of seeing that relationship just through the screen. And I think that is probably one of my favorite parts of the movie the um i want to poop back and forth <laughs> and with the same poop forever um that robbie and his brother chat with some anonymous person that turns out to be nancy harrington online it was just a little unfortunate that it ended up like that for me yeah i don't know i feel like we should talk about that i don't know whether the right word is relationship yeah but i kind of curious about why you didn't want that threat to go there uh, it's, it's weird because I feel like there are different levels of characters in this, in my head, where some are a lot more fleshed out and some are very not fleshed out. And I think Nancy Harrington yeah. is a character that is very not fleshed out. Mm. And the way that July, at least in my mind, like just fits her into certain things feels too convenient for me and i don't know i just don't really appreciate the the character's presence in the film <laughs> and i think the film would have been better if, if she was not included and i feel like that also includes all the art making i'm sorry i'm sorry unfortunately um i feel like the film would be a better a stronger film without all of those elements yeah you know what i kind of agree which art making like the whole plot with the art making and the talking to the gallery, like, I feel like if that was just right. not there, if she sought a different career or I think mm. if it was just a different world, that section, I feel like it would have made it a stronger film because I think a lot of other things were so, so fascinating for me. I think the exploration of sexual maturity with these children, the girls with the older guy that works with, uh, Richard at the at the store, the two teenage girls um, that communicate with him through the really raunchy um, paper messages that he tapes up on his window, which is next to their bus stop. Um, and also Robbie having a chat online about poop. Mm. And the scene with Peter and the girls as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. There's also kind of Sylvie, who's the younger girl neighbor who is really obsessed with her dowry, which oh. is like all this homemaking stuff. That's maybe my oh, favorite I love element of the film. Yeah, same. It's not a very big element of the film, but it does feel... It feels like a very strong point, I guess, she's trying to make with that character, or like a certain kind of way that a child views sexuality or relationships. And I think a lot of the children or teenagers in this, it's about how they look at sexuality and... Mm. Like, kind of like a child's... Yeah possibly wrong but like innocent idea of what sexuality or marriage or romantic relationships are supposed to be like mm -hmm. and like trying to navigate that without fully understanding a lot of things about it yeah 
And I always kind of forget that before I watch the film that a lot of it is about that specifically. Mm-hmm. And it makes a lot of sense that this is inspired by Kung Fu Master, which is about that kind of taboo or rather criminal relationship. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of like see where that inspiration comes from, where she's almost trying to take it from the other side of like, like how does the child see this? Right. I am struggling to decide how icky this is. Especially with Robbie and like... Uh, mm. I don't think it's that e- icky though. I really don't yeah, think that it's super icky. I agree. And I feel like I really appreciate... Now that we're talking about it, I love all the kids stuff. And then I think the adult stuff is sort of a chore to get through. I, I think <laughs> Richard... I think I sort of understand him, but I think he's just like too out there for me to get like you think about his introduction scene where they're packing up the house because he just recently divorced his wife and Mm -hmm. he goes to his kids and he says do i look well to you guys and then proceeds to light his hand on fire outside (laughs) i feel like with kajillionaire you understand you i have a better understanding of why these characters act this way and i think with the children in this movie it makes sense because they're naive and they're getting to know the world and they have a really unique worldview but i think these Mm -hmm. adults just exist like this you could say that it's just the whole world that july created but i was not buying those adult characters and the the situations that they were put in as much as the kid Mm. i agree there is some inconsistency across the detail and pathology and method of characterization through these adult characters Mm -hmm. But where there's that variety, there is, for me, a variety of levels of interest. Mm. So where I'm not as interested in the Miranda July character, Richard, played by John Hawks, that whole sequence from the beginning really had me hooked. Mm. And the construction of that character, I found really fascinating. You know Mm. me, anything where it's like, I have to figure this out, I'm really drawn in by. on the case. Senor stands (laughs) on the case. (laughs) (laughs) So when he has that conversation with his kids and goes outside, there's the suggestion of a reason why he's then going and lighting his hand on fire. But we don't learn that until a scene or two later that yeah. he learned this trick from his father, I think it was. Right. But he used the wrong <laughs> liquid. So he used instead of alcohol, which burns up immediately, he uses lighter, lighter fluid, fluid. <laughs> which just maims his hand. Great stuff. Good stuff. To me, that latent reveal has set up a question gotten me to lean in and then given me the answer oh he's trying to connect with his kids and Mm. to me that replicates the experience of what the kids are going through in that moment of not really understanding the motivations behind Richard's erratic behavior and maybe years down the line they'll understand that he was trying to connect or maybe they Mm. won't but Mm. there's something about that kind of disconnect between the intention behind a strange action Mm. and the audience to that action and missing the heart that's going into that intention that feels again thematically crucial and right from the start i think it's a strong statement of the theme even though it takes a little bit to piece it together Mm. and that time it takes is part of the communication of that theme that to me is one of the smarter constructions of a scene in the film. Like I think with Richard's character and how he kind of, with his erratic behavior, alienates 
his kids from him. Yeah. That kind of like makes sense in how they kind of sink into the internet to find other connections that that kind of tracks. So we're talking about this idea of like this being about connecting with others and like the internet. And strangely, I think the internet portion of this, which is like essentially just Robbie and Peter's little arc where they like to chat with people in chat rooms. That's like the, the internet portion. And I think a lot of the other segments are about just like loneliness within the city. Mm. And Richard is here trying to find connections with people and then having issues with that. And there's this great scene when, because Richard and Miranda's character have a sort of flirtation that begins in the most romantic place, the shoe store. Oh. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so there is a scene where Miranda's character kind of runs up to him and then they have this talk along the street and then they kind of go through this rumination that them walking on the street could be seen as a metaphor for them being possibly a couple that would die at the end of that street and like compressing time and it's this extremely i think cheesy idea of a romantic scene that she kind of subverts herself like she knows that this scene is is cheese it's not real and that i think it kind of comes from Miranda July's character that doesn't quite see the world the same way as she does as well. And then when she decides to just get in Richard's car <laughs> in the scene right after, Richard's like, this is does not make sense. This is crazy. <laughs> we and found the line. Immediately kind of <laughs> puts a dampener on the idea of romanticism in those two scenes, which I found very fascinating in the sense that it's almost like she's trying to make something that's a little bit off-putting. Because that scene when they're walking down the street is a little off-putting because you're like, is this really what she's putting to, to the film? Like, this is too much. I think that scene is too much, the scene of them flirting on the street. Hmm. But I think she knows it. And I do wonder about the other scenes and how much of them are supposed to be about pushing that boundary. Because you can tell that based on the idea that she was basing this off Kung Fu Master's ideas, that she is trying to push the boundaries of a few subjects here and seeing if she can get away with it. Yeah. Hmm. I thought that was a very sweet scene. And I mm. feel like the subsequent scene came across to me as very petty from Richard uh, because he was really put off by the ending of that previous scene where she was just like, I'm, I'm just going to go to my car. And I feel like that was a retaliation of that rather than uh, get out so? of my fucking car. To me, I was like, he holds that grudge and that's that's what's happening right now. <laughs> but I don't know. It could be like she crossed the line. Regardless of motivation, that sequence has a really interesting shape to me where if Miranda July's character is coming into that block-long conversation slash metaphor as the one fantasizing and bringing in this not-quite-down-to-earth perspective, then Richard is the one who has a foot on the ground and kind of rolls with the play and John Hawks really anchors that scene mm. in how he responds yes. to this fantasizing. In the subsequent scene when he is overreacting to Miranda July getting into his car following such a frankly intimate conversation, it feels like a flip where now Miranda mm. July is the one who gets to be like, well, we just shared this reality together. Mm. Why are you rejecting this reality? And we're more on her side than on his, mm -hmm. I feel. So they, once again, cross paths and have this disconnect across these two scenes yeah. and this long conversation where 
one of them is in one level of reality and they briefly share that space and then they drift in the opposite direction and we don't see them on screen together again in the movie is that correct they certainly don't have many scenes together after that point no they they, they do like they definitely do <laughs> well they call each other on the phone but are no, they on screen together yes that's like the whole she comes back to the to the store and then she sees him talking to his ex-wife and that's what she was like oh do you want this picture frame you could say i love you so many times yeah but not to be that guy but like they're not actually united in the frame in that oh. moment right no but there's also the scene where she has oh the no yeah mirror. i'm scrubbing through they're united in the frame later on okay <laughs> <laughs> whoops there's like a few scenes after that because that scene where she gets in the car is like the 25 percent mark of that arc right i will say they are rarely in the same frame after that point rarely uh-huh hmm <laughs> I don't know if I buy this, Eli. <laughs> it doesn't make sense, Eli. <laughs> I buy it. <laughs> it's okay. For me. He stands by it, and it'll stick in the edit. <laughs> well, I'm gonna disagree because I think that doesn't make sense. But <laughs> <laughs> dig yourself deeper. That's the precedent I set. <laughs> I want to talk about that scene with the mirror, which comes a few mm. scenes after this scene where yeah. they are united in the frame. <laughs> 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 and I found that scene really interesting because she is reaching for an aesthetic ideal, I think, in that scene. Mm. So that scene begins with a match cut from the moon that Richard is looking at. Very good. Very good match cut. There are quite a that few is a very good, good match good cut. There. And then it matches to the light from the mirror on the wall in the shoe store that Christine, Miranda's character, is kind of reflecting. And then... You see it as kind of a dream sequence where like the lights come on and then you realize that she's kind of imagining herself projecting a light onto Richard. And then after that, they kind of have this moment together where he uses Shugu to, to stick the mirror back onto the compact because it falls off. It's a very obvious uh, example of them being in the frame together, Eli. Just if, just if, if, you, if you want to take <laughs> <Yeah>. some notes. <laughs> yeah, I guess that is what that is, huh? <laughs> if you want me to edit some stuff out. <laughs> Anyway, no, you know, you I'm, I'm going to set the precedent. Yeah, I'm setting the precedent that we can embrace our mistakes and roll on with it, you know? Nice. I'm human. Wow. Anyway, that scene, like two things. The first thing is that I think it reaches to something aesthetically, but I don't think is necessarily good. Yeah. It's like interesting. It's obviously the most unrealistic part of the entire film, like this dreamlike sequence. But it doesn't really, I think, reach an aesthetic height. Although it is interesting in how it elucidates her character and like how she sees the world. Mm. But that scene after where they're holding the glue of the mirror together, yeah. I draw a very strong line of that to the nail scene in Congelia. Yeah. And yep. It feels like the kind of thing where like these two scenes I think existed on their own before the film. Like she mm. wanted to create a scene like that with intimacy and like is chucking it in there. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting idea. And I think obviously much more successful in Congelionaire. Yeah. To me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But it is interesting to see that kind of progression from this film to Congelionaire. And of, yeah. of course, Congelionaire is much more plot based, but then you can still see that Congelionaire is made up of vignettes of things that happen to the same characters. Definitely. You know what I mean? Like in yeah. construction of that film, even though it has a more coherent plot it is structured in a sense similar to how this film is structured where it's like kind of like 
little different sections and segments that have like yeah. different arcs yeah. on their own. But I think the simplicity of the emotional storytelling in Kajillionaire is what makes it a stronger film for me. And I think that scene, the dream sequence, well, dream-ish sequence with the mirror and the moon is sort of July trying to get at how do I show to the viewer or externalize internal feelings in an interesting way. And where I do think she she tries and is not so successful in this film, I think the scenes in which the family role plays being a family in Kajillionaire is her trying at it again, but contextualizing it in something that is happening on screen actually to these characters and it paying off a lot more. Yeah, definitely. It does feel like a progression in a really good way for her, at least in my opinion. Mm. I think Kajillionaire doesn't have all that low fineness to it, but I think in her storytelling, the way that she simplifies things, yeah, I'm very happy about that. I think because of the fact that she's able to kind of point all these segments towards one idea, like one family, it feels more thematically coherent. Right. And I still do think that this film, her first feature, is thematically coherent. It's just it doesn't have that very strong sense of cohesion that you find really, really good movies have. Like yeah. when everything is like laser focused onto one point. But this one, each moment is like not that strong on its own, but it does all kind of mm-hmm. stack up on top of each other to kind of express this idea she has of like modern loneliness. Yes. That I think works. But I do think that the lack of plot cohesion that these characters have make it possible for her to construct these situations and scenes that Mm. are so out there. I feel like if it was more dialed in, like she wouldn't be able to play with all these ideas, which I think the ideas make this film so unique and so special and worth talking about at at length. You you were talking about the web of life kind of narrative structure. Mm -hmm. How successful do you think she is with that? I mean, just thinking about the web of life structure or like kind of narrative, I do wonder like, why do filmmakers go for that kind of plot mm. style? Like, what is the reason? It's, it's interesting because I do think in a lot of ways, yes, it works because they're all about modern loneliness and in a mm-hmm. way, and I see that thread very clearly. But I think what I really love about like my favorite web of life movies like Yee Yee or like the terrorizers i think edward yang does this beautifully in his films is that when it's so crucial to spend the first two-thirds of these movies building these characters up and then the real plot gets into motion in the last third where things start clicking and characters start interacting with each other to Mm -hmm. to compound in a bigger way than just thematically Whereas with mm-hmm. this film, I feel like it stayed a lot in the thematic level. Yeah. Whereas I was wishing that things clicked a little more in the last third, in the last act. I think I agree with you in that the connections between the characters, which makes sense, like, okay, here's a father and his sons, and here's a neighbor, here are their friends. More tenuous connection, random person I met in a shoe store. A lot of the connections are a little bit more arbitrary. And they don't necessarily have a big reason for being these connections, except to kind of give a sense of connection 
between the vignettes so you don't feel too lost when she's jumping between the segments. And I think the fact that it doesn't go towards a coming together kind of moment where like all these things come together is why it doesn't really fully utilize that web of life narrative structure. Now I'm thinking about Nashville, Ooh. which has like a web of industry kind of structure that comes together into a final performance. Yeah. And that's great. This one doesn't really have that. It comes together with like the art gallery, maybe, but not really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like a few ideas come together within the art gallery when you see the pooping back and forth emoji mm-hmm. on the banner mm-hmm. and then characters coming in. But it doesn't give you that payoff moment that you kind of want from these films. Not that that's necessarily always the, the one way to kind of go with yes. it. But, but I think it's the way that I've been conditioned to yeah, approach I think these so. sort of stories. <laughs> I didn't feel that the movie, by taking on that narrative structure, was necessarily promising that kind of an intertwined payoff ending simply because it is so low-key, lo-fi, and relatively mundane in terms of the plot beforehand. There aren't really stakes established Mm -hmm. earlier on, per Mm -hmm. se. Maybe that's not fair. There aren't super high stakes established Mm -hmm. earlier on. So watching certain characters intersect in small ways, even though not everyone overlaps, there's not an event that unites everyone, a la, say, Robert Altman and Shortcuts, Mm -hmm. then it didn't feel like it was failing to meet up to something for me. Mm. And really, those final overlaps of people are the moments that are the most meaningful or perplexing or even Mm -hmm. transcendent in one case yeah i'm thinking in particular of that moment when peter brings sylvia gift to add to her dowry chest and they lie together and sylvia speaks about Mm -hmm. it a little bit and then double especially in terms of the transcendent moment using form to transcend Mm -hmm. and be very emotional in an indescribable way is when robbie who has an understanding that this clicking sound from outside has been the lights turning on as part of the electrical mechanism. Mm. He goes outside in the morning. He sees a man waiting for the bus, tapping a quarter against a signpost and making that clicking sound. So what seemed like was just mechanism, there was someone behind it. And if Mm. that is not a metaphor for the internet (laughs) and its connective power, Mm -hmm. then I don't know what is. And Mm -hmm. that's a moment that feels very defining for Robbie as Mm. there's this extreme close-up on the quarter tapping and the rising sun reflecting behind it. And then the streetlights go on and then there's this light cue change on Robbie's face and it's all very theatrical and really skillfully and expressionistically done. Mm. And I think it's a phenomenal ending to the movie. Mm. It's great. I agree. The man gets on the bus, gives Robbie a quarter, and Robbie starts tapping on the signpost. He's he's tapping with some speed, man. He's like, I got somewhere <laughs> oh, to go. Tapping. He's tapping. He's tapping. <laughs> <laughs> I like your interpretation and it's totally valid. And I think from the way that I look at this movie or like see Robbie's arc, I kind of take away a little something different, which is like the sense of childlike curiosity that he has about things. Mm. And him discovering that that reason is kind of this statement that adults kind of make up shit to kind of 
understand the world around them, they'll be like, mm. clearly this is that. Or like, this thing I don't understand, I'm going to make up an answer and it's enough that I think this answer is coherent or like logical that I don't need to investigate. But it also affirms his curiosity. Yeah. And I think with him finding out, it's almost like me finding out, oh, you know, adults don't know shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think that also plays into that whole arc where he is exploring his childlike idea of sexuality with poop. And I think, I mean, I love films about children's points of views and like how they see the world in like weird and sometimes <laughs> fucked up ways. And I kind of see that as like, and this idea of pooping back and forth is obviously the biggest joke of the entire film. But I think the idea that, you know, he's understanding it from this naive sense of it is so poetic. No, it really is. It really is. Weird, the weirdest way ever is, is endearing and also like has meaning in how we can maybe as adults like start seeing the world in more childlike ways as well. Yeah. Like have hmm. that curiosity that he has. With the pooping, I think it's a kind of creativity about like <laughs> sexuality and yeah. also like about looking at the world right no 100 percent. and i feel like Our connection more broadly yeah, yeah even though i like shit on to say <laughs> not it's a better word on that <laughs> i shit on that scene where he finally meets nancy harrington in the park in other ways i think it's great because he's sort of still even though he's a child he still validates her and her curiosities in her adult curiosities. Yeah. I think that's how that scene avoids being too, like, crossing the line. Because it is more rooted in Robbie's fascination. Mm -hmm. And because that, that scene doesn't feel sexual in, like, a, an adult way. The same way that Kung Fu Master has, like, the romantic attraction in, that, in those scenes are more, like, romantic. Like, here mm -hmm. it's more of, like, two lonely people of very different age ranges, like kind of seeing each other in person outside the internet and then like how they relate to each other. Now that we're still, we're still talking about Robbie, but I do think, yeah, Brandon Ratcliffe who plays him is so good. I think he is the, <laughs> the MVP in the movie. I think just Agreed. the way that he carries himself on screen is so funny and so adorable. <laughs> like when um the two girls go into their house in order to see who gives a better blowjob, obviously. <laughs> um and um the way that he wants to stay and and keeps on getting more items of clothing to put on before <laughs> going outside is so adorable and I don't know. I just love love that kid. Like one of the best child performances that I've seen in in quite a while. It's funny you mentioned E because I read a review that compared his performance with the oh, kid in E with Yang yeah. Yang. I oh, see it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which I like. I see. I see the kind of not similarities, but like the equally good performances that they both play, yeah. and also kind of both films are about a child's curiosity. Yeah. Right. And I mean, that's pretty oh, high God, praise to guys. compare this yeah. film with E.E. E. Yeah. yeah. I can't wait to talk about Edward, Edward Yang. Yang. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like so... When do we desperate. get to that? <laughs> I feel like we have to earn covering Edward Yang. Yeah. I don't know how or why. Like how we earned our covering of Wong Kar Wai. I feel like there's a similar sort of growing we need to moment. do. Yeah. I'm just waiting for that confusion. Confusion. <laughs> 
restoration <laughs> to hit you yeah Ooh. i think that's the gonna might be uh that's the only one that i haven't saw i um, that's not english um that's the only one that i haven't seen <laughs> oh we kind of dropped the topic but i'm kind of interested because continuing on from this idea of like exploration of sexuality from a young person's point of view like what do y'all think of how the arc of the two teen girls ends because i think that plot arc is interesting i don't know if it's particularly transcendent the same way like robbie's can be no and i don't know what she's trying to do there and i think maybe it's partially also just trying to push the line a little bit Mm. because obviously you have a character who's like writing extremely sexual messages to two teenage girls and like how off that comes off but then it's played off in an extremely what's the word i guess this is the one time i'll use this word but it's played off in a quirky way oh quirky jar the music cues when they're reading those notes are extremely dissonant with what they are reading but it is interesting how she's playing into like their sexuality and like how they're seeing this as a way to explore that and the ending, it's not the most amazing conclusion, but I, I guess it's about how when they want it, then the guy chickens out and mm. doesn't like go into his sexual fascinations with the both of them, which kind of maybe feeds into a sense of disconnection between the characters. They have like secret desires, but then they don't act on them. I don't know. It felt, it felt very weird. To me in in not a yeah it just felt kind of weird right not a way that i don't know amounted to anything more than what was being relayed to mm-hmm. me by the film i think she's yeah. trying to say something about like women being approached or like call cat called or it, i think it's like an extension of that sort of violation that happens mm-hmm. but the yeah. reaction of the girls is is what she wants to show in a new way or show in like a not what you would expect kind of way but at least to me as a man that's watching this i don't know i don't know i uh, yeah i I couldn't really take away anything from it that meant a lot Mm. but i understand that what she's trying to do is just didn't didn't really land for me yeah i think it fits thematically but then it's kind of like on its own it doesn't really sing I think it's wholesale creepy. But I think some of the lines are pretty funny, though. I think some of the <laughs> some of the messages and also like one like line on that the, I wrote down. The paper. That, yeah, that one of the girls um, says to the other girl, <laughs> like, yeah, see where see where that crack is in the wall. That's where his hard on is. It's where when he first, <laughs> they first see him on, looking back at them and he's just smiling <laughs> at them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah those girls are mean they are mean 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 mm. yeah. but i think the scene where they both give peter a blowjob to to see who does it better is a much better use of those characters to s- see them exploring their sexuality and i feel like the moment where Peter's receiving the blowjob and he's like staring directly at a family picture is so that's that's like <laughs> that's great that's a great icky moment as opposed to the other icky moments I guess I kind of wonder about that scene because it doesn't necessarily go anywhere like that relationship that that is happening like with the blowjob <laughs> is not 
part of like a larger picture but then now i'm kind of thinking maybe it's part of peter's disconnection because he's he's clearly like this kind of disaffected teenager that doesn't mm-hmm. really have like a lot of friends mm-hmm. and obviously wants to explore some kind of sexual relationship which he kind of does in this blowjob scene yeah but doesn't find it fulfilling maybe and i guess maybe that plays into how he kind of has a connection with sylvie who's this mm. much younger character that feels more meaningful to him and it's not and it's more platonic and it was really crushing i guess when he like goes up to sylvie in public at the playground and then it's like just asking about her her chest and then she just gets completely spooked and just pretends she doesn't know him and that felt very raw in a way that i was like damn (laughs) like even when you find somebody that you like having hanging out with you for whatever reason don't admit that to yourself Mm -hmm. and also like don't want to share this idea of the chest with so many people because maybe even she thinks it's a bit weird no matter how much she's into it Mm -hmm. i i really like the sylvie Thing, even though it really occupies such a, a small part of the film mm. uh, it's very strong like it is from a thematic and character standpoint i feel like the big link for me between the two films at least stylistically is the earnestness that the score brings everything like i feel like the score in this one also similarly brings a great sense of like meaning and emotionality to the film and help keeps it all innocent in tone. Yeah. Yes, that too. But I, I do appreciate July's heavy leaning on the score to do some, some of the heavy lifting. Which I feel like would be a cop-out in some ways, but I think she's very intentional about it. And it works very well. I'm not too hot on the score, mm-hmm. honestly. Kajilina mm. is equally reliant on its score, but I think for some reason with the way that it sounds, it feels a bit more heavy-handed. And I think it's almost like it's a bit too distinctive in some sense. Mm -hmm. In certain moments, it's like, oh, the score is coming in now. Whereas like with Kajunina, that score sneaks up on you a little bit more, even though it is like extremely big as well. Yeah. Something about it here. Maybe it's because the things we're seeing on screen are so mundane that the score is much more apparent. Yeah. You know what I mean? Could be. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, with Kajinina, it's matched with much more, like, heightened visuals or, like, heightened scenes that, like, the score is more of a accentuation on those things. Whereas yeah. here, it does kind of envelop it too much a little bit. Hmm. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, like, even though I have a lot of reservations about this film, it still comes down to this idea that it feels, like, more than the sum of its parts. Like, I don't particularly find a lot of the story segments extremely compelling but i think as like a portrait of modern loneliness which i've said a few times it does come together for me and i think the tone that she has with each of these things and the way that each character feels feels very apparent and it does stack up to kind of give you this sense of loneliness and like yearning for connection which i think is very strong even if it doesn't all reach like extreme highs right you have some extreme highs but not all of them reach that but it still really comes together to give a sense of coherence and like fullness to that thematic idea. And I still really appreciate that about this film. And of course, it's like a first feature and it's will kind of become a kajillionaire. <laughs> and you can see those like kind of support structures coming in that I still really like this film at the end of the day. To me, that less polished quality adds a lot 
that mm. I felt was missing in Kajillionaire. And it also thematically feels closer to those pieces of context that Ben gave us about the other types of art that July likes to engage mm-hmm. in. There are definitely some icky things in this movie, maybe in ways that get away from July. But there's also a lot that's very heartfelt and is about a childlike, innocent perspective on connection. And I think that there is value to that in this movie. Mm -hmm. And there's some really funny stuff, too. As Wilson said, these child performances are really, really funny. Mm. And there is something that July gets right about how kids see the world and Mm. the either firmness or flexibility with which they approach things that are beyond their understanding. Even if most of the episode, I feel like I spent talking about my issues with the <laughs> film, I think I am still, I still really enjoyed it. And I feel like, of course, the child performances are a highlight, but I really appreciate that Miranda July's unique vision of the world is is something that people are watching and people are consuming and people are sharing with each other because I feel like, I don't know, there's a sort of blandness to American independent cinema that has sprouted on since American independent Mm. cinema began that I think people need to come in and, and shake things up a bit and present their views on the world that are a little horny, a little funny a little weird a little kitschy a little quirky Mm. and i am grateful still to miranda july for for taking up that space in american cinema that's a really good point i think i think especially with more like recent films in the indie space about this kind of like milieu like you know like family and stuff they have started to kind of blend together and like become very Mm samey But I think because of the oddities that July introduces, she still feels very like her own thing, even among the younger directors that she's now peers with, right? Yeah. Do you all find that to be true? I would say a lot of American independent cinema right now feels created with the purpose of getting the director discovered. Like, oh, Mm. this movie is impressive. Who made this Mm. movie? Yes, Yes. Rather than making a movie for the sake of itself. And that's a very cynical view that Mm -hmm. many of the directors of these films would disagree with. But, you know, there's a reason why everyone wants to shoot on like a black magic camera because it looks so good. And there's like that standard quality and it's boring to me. And Mm. I wasn't bored during it, me and you and everyone we know. And it felt made with the purpose of communicating a perspective And that I admire, even if on the whole, I'm maybe not the hugest fan of July so far. It it Mm. still is worthwhile. And there's a lot to appreciate. Like, for some reason, the film I'm thinking about that's like about kids that I'm like, this is going to blend is like mid 90s. Mid 90s. Oh, (laughs) like, I don't know why that's the film that's in my head right now. But I'm just like, this is just like, eh. but anyway. Directed by up-and-coming indie <laughs> darling Jonah Hill. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Jonah Hill. Hey, hey, he has a doc coming out this year that sounds very interesting. Oh. So, I don't know. He might be He might be actually the next indie darling. <laughs> okay. Next episode, we're going to talk about Marangeli's sophomore feature, The Future, which is definitely the deep cut. Ooh. And 
I do not know where I land on this, and I do not know where both of you are going to land on this, but this is going to, like, if this dings your quirky jar, Wilson, <laughs> that one's going to break it. <laughs> like, it's going to break it. <laughs> and I'm scared. Oh, boy. It's only been a few months since I've seen it, and, like, I am not sure what I remember for it. I'm not sure how I feel about it. And... I'm very excited to talk about it with both of you and like just be a little confused about it as well together. It's definitely going to be an interesting one. <laughs> I'm holding my breath. I'm buckling my seatbelt. <laughs> this is the make or break Am I in on Red yeah. July movie. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> we'll see. High stakes. Tune in next week. My bet is on break. <laughs> That's my okay. bet. Let's find out. <laughs> we'll find out. Okay, let's close it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. You can keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd at DeepCutPod and join us to talk about movies on our Discord server to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you to Justina Yan for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Yeah. What if this podcast were like a life fully lived? <laughs> what? Are we about to die? Oh. Do we die when we cut the episode? <laughs> yes. Hi, Ben here after editing this episode. Don't think anyone's gonna hear this because it's all the way at the end of the episode that we're not even sure if you're listening sometimes, but it would be so nice to know. We put in so much effort into these things and it's always nice to hear from people when they've listened to it. I don't know, maybe you'll listen to this episode and you won't listen to Eli's great work on music and hear this little thing at the end of this episode, but maybe you will. Today I'm editing this after we spent about four hours recording two new episodes coming out, maybe in February or something, if 2023, but I think we recorded this way back in... I want to say November of last year, but it takes so much time to make these things and we hope you enjoy them. Don't think anyone's going to listen to this, so I could probably just say whatever I want. So, but if you are listening and you want to come chat with us, you can come to the Discord server and go into any channel, type out in all caps, macaroni. Leave it at that. And we'll know. Or I'll know. You'll listen to this all the way through. Maybe there'll be a prize, but probably not. But I hope if you really did listen all the way through that this was a nice surprise. And I'm sure you've probably watched a movie before you listen to this. so You know why it's here. Stay safe. Take care. Catch you guys on the next episode.